I do love that sound. When you hear that music, you know it's time for the Rec Poker Podcast. Thanks for joining us for another week of the Forums Edition. Uh, brought to you, as always, by website AMP, Learn Pro Poker, and Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino. I'm your host, Jim Reed, at Jim in the forums and Bluffsterini in the home games. Come and take my chips. I am begging you. I'm joined by the illustrious panel, just like every week. Lead us off, Chris Jones, and tell us where the group can find you. Find me, Chris Jones, uh, 5 by 5 on Twitter and PokerStars. I'm John Somsky, Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Rob Washam, Rabman50 on Twitter and the PokerStars home game. Taylor Moss, uh, GopherBoy TJM in the home game, and also Taylor underscore Moss on Twitter. So as every week, as we do every week, we're playing in the Rec Poker home game, trying to take each other's chips. And uh, as every week, we pull one hand from the Rec.Poker forums and talk about it. This week, we're taking a hand from one of the panelists, the one and only Taylor Moss. Taylor, why don't you take us through your hand here? Yeah, so this is a, a post that I put out there um, back in August. Um, it's uh, titled Gopher River Bluff. And how fitting to be talking to Gopher Boy TJM about going for a river bluff. Um, but uh, we're, we're kind of in an interesting spot here. And the, the hand is pretty simple, uh, but I think uh, a lot can be learned from it. So um, uh, to set it up, we are playing a very large field tournament on America's Card Room. There was about 1,700 people that entered. Uh, we're in the money. Uh, we're in the final 120 people, uh, but still a ways to go to actually reach the final table when uh, a lot of the money is, you know, paid out. So people, you know, have that money. They're either going to be looking for doubles or potentially a little bit tighter because they've been playing for a long period of time. Uh, it all depends on our opponents, but. Uh, we're in middle position plus one. Uh, we start the hand with 34 and a half big blinds. Uh, we make a standard mint open to two big blinds uh, with a seven offsuit. Uh, so probably one of our weaker hands in terms of our opening ranges. Um, and for the sake of this hand, we're going to be talking about a potential board that has a spade flush draw. We have the seven of spades. We don't have the ace of spades. Uh, so I'll just call that out to begin with. Um, but we open to two big blinds from middle position plus one, and it folds around to the big blind uh, who just calls. The big blind here has 24 big blind stack, uh, so we're playing that for an effective stack size. Uh, we get delta flop. It is the king of spades, nine of diamonds, three of spades. They check to us, and we make a continuation bet of two big blinds, and they call. Turn comes the king of diamonds. So now we have a paired board. There's two kings uh, plus the spade draw. So it's uh, king of spades, nine of diamonds, three of spades, king of diamonds. They check again. Uh, we choose a small sizing and we bet out 3.25 big blinds and they call. The river comes queen of spades, uh, completing a flush draw plus the uh, gut shot straight and they check. And this is where the adequate title comes in. Go for a river bluff, question mark. Because uh, I think we're in a tough spot. Do we fire this river? The, the pot is 16 big blinds. They have 16 and a half left. 
Um, so we're kind of in an interesting spot. We can leverage their stack. Uh, we could make a smaller bet sizing, or we could just check and give up here. Um, so I'll, I'll turn it over to the panel. What, what does everyone think in this spot? Yeah, take it, Chris. I see you unmuting there. I feel like I always go first, but I'll, I'll jump in and just say that um, once we're in this spot, so like it kind of, this really depends to me a little bit on villain. Um, I feel like especially, um, what, what stake was this, Taylor? Do you remember? I do not. My guess would be it's like a 1650. Okay. So like at that stake level, like, I find at the lower stakes, like my thought process changes when these the flush draws come in. Um, with that queen of spades on the river, I feel like most people at those kind of stake levels, if they hit their flush, they cannot resist. And they uh, so that so I am ruling out most flushes from our from our villain opponent at this point, and I'm really putting them strongly on a nine. Um, some kind of nine or some kind of middling pair that, uh, you know, pocket eights, pocket tens, somewhere, somewhere below the king. Um, that's, that's sort of like where I've got them. Um, uh, I, I'm not really scared about the flush. And, and for that reason, I feel like from our perspective, we can both represent both, I think, the king and the flushes. Um, and so this is a spot where I, where I am going to go for a, a river bluff. Um, because I, do, I think our, our, our opponent is pretty capped. Um, but that's my take. I'll go ahead. Um, I, when, when I'm thinking about bluffing or through your barrel and bluffing a hand, the first thing I think about is, is my story. Am I telling a story that makes sense? Um, does it, does it make sense from their perspective that I would be firing this river when this flush draw comes in? And reading through it, I, I think I probably check, check uh, behind here um, because what have you committed so far to the pot? You said the pot is 16. So you've committed about eight big blinds of your 34. Yeah, so I opened it. To, opened it two big blinds. Uh, the flop continuation bet was another two big blinds, and then the turn uh, continuation bet on the turn still was three point two five. So I've committed seven point two five big blinds. Yeah, so I, I guess I, I'm I'm checking behind. I if you were in a flush draw, um, most people would probably check the turn rather than firing another bet on the turn. Um, I'm thinking, I, I do put the opponent on likelihood of a, like a nine or, or some sort of middle pair as well. And I, and I, even though this is a lower stake tournament, you are in the final 120 of 1700 people. So a lot of these players are going to be fairly good. And, you know, if, if their flush came in, I do think that they would probably bet it out because they wouldn't want you to check behind. But in summary, I'm not sure that your line here makes sense to me to, to fire off a third bullet unless you had the king. But then you had the king, unless you had a bullet, let's say, because if even if you had trip king, trip kings, you know, the spade came in, 
for the flush. So it, it, I, I would probably call because I, I don't see the story making sense. And, and uh, Jerry, is that to do with the sizing of the action on the previous streets or what is it about the story that doesn't make sense at this point? Um, for me, it's okay. If Taylor has the flush draw that he bet the flop, he's checking the turn back. If he, if he had um, a king with a decent kicker and turned trip kings, it makes sense bet that, but then I would probably be checking the river back because of the spade coming in for my opponent. Um, so I, I, I mean, I like the bet sizing. I, I like the bet sizing a lot. I just, I just can't connect it all to where it would make sense to me. And I would probably look him up unless he's going to shove. If, if he, I guess it depends on your bet on the river, you know, because you are in the money, people are laddering up. If, if you're going to put a pot size bet out there, you probably get a fold out of me. So Jerry, just quick question. Just would you, how would you play this if you had ace king or king jack? Would you, you would check back on the, on the river here? Yes. Okay. Interesting. I would. King queen is the only one you would bet, right? Right, right. Because if I had ace king or king jack and I bet the river, I'm only going to get called or raised by hands that beat me, in my thinking. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm just going to get folds anyway. Mm hmm and is there, uh, I'm always intrigued at these opportunities. If I had a king here, I would be tempted to bet like two big blinds on the river and exploitatively fold when raised. Um, I don't know if that's, I've, I've been experimenting with this really small sizes with thin value, especially in position in, in our home games. And I find that our field doesn't two bet uh, balanced. So you can get away with some of those, but I'm not sure if that's a sizing you'd want to be taking with your entire range in this position. So it's a question of, do we want to have a balanced checking range, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, and, and again, there's very few people, people do not check raise bluff on the river. Right, but exactly. I might look at your small bet like that. I'm like, oh, he's okay. He's afraid of the board pair, he's afraid rate of the flush comes in if i have the chips i might i might raise you just to see what happens mm -hmm. and then that puts me in a nightmare spot with basically a bluff catcher trips uh on that board right right yeah so taylor do you have any uh stats on our opponent uh i i don't i don't have uh on the fly here Okay. Um, I vaguely remember when I first put this post out there that I didn't really have uh, many stats on the opponent or at least not anything like worth mentioning. Um, usually when you're playing like this deep of a tournament, especially uh, we got into the money here, probably around like 200, 220 people left. Uh, so there's a lot of bust outs happening. So like this stage of the tournament, people are constantly like moving tables. So I don't think I really have any okay. sort of uh, valuable read. What is the um, average uh, stack size for the remaining 120 players? Um, I, I don't think that matters too much, but uh, my guess would probably be somewhere around 20 big blinds. Right. So he's, he's not in bad shape then um, compared to the field. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they're not desperate is what you mean, Rob. Like they're right. in no rush to get it in here. They're not right. incentivized to shove like the, like they would be with a shorter stack. Correct. Mm -hmm. 
because they they could still fold and still have well like you say 16 big blinds which at this stage in these tournaments is not a bad stack to have mm -hmm. it's uh it's interesting how it works on some of these acr tournaments when you get down there that those uh the the average amount of chips that people have is very low so you're incentivized to play a much shorter stack uh in a more regular manner than you would if you know in a tournament where you know the average stacker is going to be in the 40s and 50s and you're sitting there with 16 then yeah you're gonna you're gonna be anxious to get it in and try to double up we get a few other great responses in the forum and i should tell you folks uh, if I've done my job right, in the show notes, you'll see a link to the forum post and go and check it out because you can get into a level of detail um, in the written word that we can't really waste your time with talking about it here. But uh, one, of my one of my favorite forum posters at ARW um, puts another one of his classic uh, posts in here where they talk about what are the actual hands they would have in various parts of the range? You know, should we be thinking about this from a combo point of view? And... Um, he ends up advocating uh, for a shove. Um, I wonder, I think Binkley also makes a point in here about how different would it be if you had the ace of spades instead of the seven of spades? And uh, does anyone want to talk about what other kinds of variables we might introduce into this to make the, to change the action? I think John? the ace of spades would make a, <clears throat> a huge difference in that a lot of the spade draws you'd be up against would include the ace of spades. So that would make it a lot less likely that they would have a spade draw. However, they've called up to this point, so that might make it more likely that they hold the king then. Mm -hmm. And they might have a very hard time getting away from that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's you interesting how that blocker value kind of changes street to street, right? It's, uh, it's very different on the river than it is uh, uh, earlier. Yeah, Rob? I would probably think that I would see uh, um, a check raise if the guy had a king on the turn. I think that, that that's when you're going to try to get some value before, um, you know, the river. There's no more cards to come, so you're not going to get any value out of the out of the hands that you beat. Time to get the value is on the turn before that river hits. So, I think he I think he'd probably see a check raise if he had a king. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think. I think there was some other points made in, in the post about what hands would our opponent bet on the river. Mm -hmm. And the hands that our opponent's going to bet are the hands that we're, we can't bluff against. The hands that are, that are going to check it are the, ha are the exact hands we can bluff against. That's like Chris says, that nine or uh, that's just hanging on and, and hoping to get two pair or something. Um, so I think, I think that made a big difference because that he did not bet. He did not check raise the turn. He did not bet out on the river. Taylor showed nothing but aggression. Taylor could be representing an ace king, you know, and, and, and rec players always think your opponent has ace king anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And another thing, and another thing about rec players is they don't check raise the turn without a, basically straight value exactly and, and so there you can make some exploitable plays if you if you trust players to play their strength straightforwardly in spots like this yeah the population you're playing the population yeah 
And that's why I, 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 I really do like the bluff here because I feel like I think we hear from a king on the turn, we hear from a flush on the river. Mm. Um, and so we've really got an opponent that has, I think, you know, at best they've got something like pocket tens that they played really passively but pre-flop. But I think they're probably got a nine uh, pocket eights, pocket sevens, something like that. And and I, I think we can get them off of it. Um, and and I, I'm just, I'm not, uh, the, until the field starts playing flush. I mean, I feel like the, uh, the conversation is whether, I feel like you should be playing flushes more this, you know, with, with the, you know, checking rivers once you've taken, once you've taken a passive line throughout a hand and you reach a river and you hit your flush, I think that the field should be checking more, but they don't. And so once they check here, I feel like that's a, a green light to bluff and get because them off of that marginal hand. Because they've capped their range and so yeah. much of their range is in that marginal holding now where yeah. they just can't mathematically continue right. against and it. That, against and that is also why I would probably be betting my kings. I would probably be betting in this spot with my my ace king, my king jack. Um, you know, and, and this might, maybe this is me talking out of both sides of my mouth because then what am I hoping for? I'm hoping that a nine folds to my bet when, I, when I'm bluffing and a nine calls me when I have my king. <laughs> yeah. But so, like, so I, I might I might be just not really be thinking about this right, but um, um, I, yeah. I, I do think that most likely it's like someone mentioned that he probably has a nine or a middle pocket pair, but the board is paired. So, you know, you could see somebody could hit their flush and still check, check the river. Yeah. A lot yeah, of it could be a frequency thing too. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. All right. Well, is there anything yeah. else, uh, Taylor? Is there we want to tell uh, us what happened, or should we keep talking? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I posted this hand uh, because after like thinking about it, I was like, there's a lot of cool variables in this spot that I don't think everyone like thinks of when they are going for like a river bluff. I think one of the most important things that people think about when they go for a river bluff is, hey, what are my blockers? And I thought this was a really cool one because I don't think our blockers really matter that much in this spot. So um, I posted out there kind of a lot of my thoughts, but to, to summarize it quickly, I think we have a huge range advantage here. Um, given that we took a bet bet line, I think we have a lot of Kings in our range. Uh, there's still some flushes that are in our range. We obviously have, you know, the sets, the full houses, you know, all those types of things uh, in our range. And our opponent, uh, the way they played it really does not. Uh, Rob really was hitting on that point before of like, what do they have that doesn't check raise turn and doesn't lead the river here that actually has uh, strong value? It just feels so much like middle value types of hands. Um, I also think another key component is what is our showdown value? And I don't think we have a single ounce of showdown value here. Uh, given that our opponent called flop and called turn, they likely have something. Uh, if they had a draw, uh, it actually came in or hit in some sort of way. Uh, if they had the flush, it came in. Uh, if they had a gut shot draw, it either hit the straight or what is now the second pair in the hand. Um, so it, when that's the case, it, it 
definitely warrants to at least consider bluffing. Um, and then the other thing is like, how often does our opponent actually fold here? And everyone's kind of hit on it. And I totally agree with this, that their hand range just feels so much weighted towards nines. Uh, it just feels so much like they've played this face up. Uh, given the sizing that we took on the flop and the turn going a small sizing, it made it really incentivize them for them to just call. Uh, there is a chance that they have a queen here if they were, you know, sticking around with a queen jack, queen 10 type of hand. Um, but I think the majority is just a lot of nines. Uh, so when I was in this spot, um, given the check to us on the river, I just saw a ton of weakness there and a ton of opportunity in terms of actually getting our opponent to fold. Uh, so I jammed all in. Uh, so they had 16 and a half behind. We had 16 in the pot and got a very quick fold from our opponent. Easy game. Nicely done. Easy game. Taylor, <laughs> would you have done that if the board wasn't paired? Um, I think the king on the turn really helped my range. Like, I know you made the point of, like, I don't think your story really checks out. I think my story definitely checks out with a king in how that was played in terms of the, you know, bet flop. And then when I get, you know, even more value on the turn, I bet again, but I keep my sizing small. I'm trying oh, to... I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think yeah. that absolutely checks out with it. But to me, if I have that trip Kings there on the river, I'm checking back. So yeah. if I see you yeah, fight see, out, not, that's where I, where I don't river. see. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I, I think trips is just, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's a decent hand, but you've got the flush and, and the board pair there. Yeah. So I just, if it was I, me, I'd be checking back. I'm not, I'm not too worried about the flush given how it played out. Personally, get it with the 100% key piece of information being they checked the river to us. So it well, sounds like. Let me just hang on. Yeah, yeah. So the only thing I'm going to push back on is don't you a lot of times, if your flush comes in on the river and, the, and, the, and you don't have enough flush, let's say you have a, a queen high or jack high or whatever, um, and, the, and the board is paired, don't you check call there in that spot? When you're out of position on the river, I don't necessarily fire out my my made flush at that point. I I'm probably betting all the flushes that I have there, but it, it then it comes down to like population tendency, right? Like because not everyone always plays the same way that I do, and not everyone is going to bet there 100% of the time with their flush. And then there's some people that are going to check there like 100% of the time with their flush because they're you know deep in a tournament, they are worried about you know getting into a cooler situation so like it definitely plays out there i'm not saying like zero percent of the time they have a flush but i just think that extra piece of information is enough gusto for me to go for my bluff here taylor one one question from me are are you shoving so if you're shoving this hand are you you're shoving your kings then too in this spot uh, the, the, very good question um because then it, it comes down to like are you trying to always play balanced at a hundred percent of the time or are you taking exploitive spots in, you know, different positions and stuff like that? So um, if I had a King, I'm likely either betting somewhat small to incentivize a call or big. If I think um, I think I can get a call out of them. And I think given the river um, I probably bet small to incentivize a call from a nine 
Uh, but if the river was like a deuce of something else, I might go big and make it look like I missed my draw. And, it and that, that's like, like a very expletive play mm -hmm. that I'm describing. So can I make a can I make a comment? Uh, I heard it talk about balanced yeah. ranges. So I, I want to give a shout out to you. So I, I've been coached by Ryan LaPlante at, at Chip Leader for a while, and then I followed him over on LPP. And one thing he he and Chip Leader really drilled into us is not to do it, not not to worry about playing a balanced range because you are playing so many different players. And and I mean, if you're playing the same people at your home game, that's one thing. But you're playing so many different people at live tournaments that you don't really need to worry about. Uh, people picking up reads by being unbalanced in your play. So they advocate much more for an exploitive type play and really only lean towards, you know, playing a balanced range if you're in those super, super high stake tournaments. And it, it does feel like shoving the turn in position there with the trip kings feels like a real emerged shoving range. Like, I think Jerry's point earlier was that it's not necessarily a value shove because you're not getting called by worse. Like precisely because it's a good bluff spot, it makes it a bad value targeting spot. Is that, is that fair? Is that correct? I think so. I, I think that goes with what Chris was saying before. He was like, Hey, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Like right. I want to be called by a nine when I have a King, but I want him to fold that nine when I don't have the King. Yeah, Andrew Brokus talks about this a lot on uh, the Thinking Poker podcast, where we have these like magical bets where we think they're going to get called by worse and they're going to get better to fold uh, according to who's in the seat, right? And uh, and I think, but but like, is that is that even the right way to be thinking about this? Because I agree with Jerry, especially at our level, the people, the player pools that we're playing against. I'm not sure balance is really as important as just trying to get the most out of the hand you're playing right now against the person across from you. Well, I, I like what Taylor was saying there. I like his approach in this hand. Um, I'm not sure that I have that approach, but I, I, it's one I need to think about more. I like like when I've got a king, I bet small to try to get called by a nine. And when I'm bluffing, I bet big and try to get him to fold a nine. And, you know, that's exploitive and, yeah, it's, I, I could, you know, if I'm playing Ike Haxton, I'm going to lose, but most of the time I'm not. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so someone, the only, thing, yeah, the only thing I would say, Taylor, about just that spot, that spot you were in an attorney, you know, if you, if you had checked and, and lost the hand because you had no showdown value, you still had a decent, a decent size chip stack. Yeah, and 24 big still, or something. Yeah, it's still quite a ways to go as far as you're saying laddering up in, in the money. So, I don't know. I mean, it, you, you, you would have been – I already forgot what his chip stack was, but if – so say he had – he, he, he was pot you, size, pot size on the river. Pot size on the river. What, what, but you had him covered, so what would yeah. you have had left if he called and won the, the – uh, It would have been like, like an extra 10 big points. 12, yeah. 10 to 12. Yeah, so I mean, you're, you're risking you're risking a lot for sixteen. I'm risking lines, sixteen for sixteen. Yeah, and I I'm just not sure I would do that at that spot in in the tournament. But the uh, one of the things that we talk about in our book study is uh, not being worried about your tournament life and going for those top spots. So I think I I know that Taylor agrees with that logic i think uh 
that's the way he approaches things and that's the way he plays. So I think his, his goal there was to not worry about, you know, what my chip stack is going to be. How can I maximize the number of chips that I could get out of that, my opponent at this time to give me a better shot to get to that final table? Yep. And, and in the big picture, the way we've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, we talk about skill edge and what does skill edge really mean? And I think in the micro stakes, your, your skill edge is discipline and it's playing tight ranges, playing better hands than your opponents and just value betting relentlessly and not bluffing. In the micros, that's your skill edge. In the medium stakes, which is where most of these people play, I think, um, your skill edge is exploiting your opponents, um, making, taking advantage of the mistakes that they make because they're making fewer mistakes than the players at the micros are, but they're making mistakes and your edge is taking advantage of those mistakes. When you get up to the nosebleeds, your skill edge is being unexploitable yourself uh, because no one else is making any mistakes, so you can't afford to either. And sometimes I think we get caught up in being unexploitable when our opponents are just making too many mistakes for us to use GTO unexploitability as a skill edge. It's not the right skill to be working on uh, in that field. What you should really be working on in our level is exploiting our opponents, taking advantage of the mistakes that they're going to make. And I think one great piece of advice, I think it was uh, Eric uh, Binkley who, who told me during a, a, one of our OPA opens the other night was, uh, you know, you gotta know when to play your range versus your opponent's range and when to play your hand versus your opponent's range. And one thing I'm doing a lot more these days is I'm just playing my hand versus my opponent's range. And if they're gonna, I, I'm gonna be exploitable and if I find that they're savvy enough to take advantage of that, then I'll change the way I play against that opponent. But um, that, that, this seems like that kind of spot. Um, I don't know. That sounded smart. Anybody else want to jump in there? Yeah. No, that, that sounded way too smart. Like we, that has to be the capstone of this. That, that was great, Jim. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, play your hand. Play your hand. I think this is a great example. Um, far be it for me to close out on anything better than that. I love it. Thanks guys. So I'd like to thank our sponsors, Learn Pro Poker, Website Amp, Running Aces, Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino. Thanks to everyone here uh, for chatting poker with me this week and see you next week. Thanks again. Thanks.